started, I would like to make a clarification. I was, uh, I was approached after church last week, um, and someone chatted with me and, and said they disagreed with something I said last week. And um, we talked about it, and after the conversation was over, I realized that they were correct. I misspoke last week, and I want to uh, clarify it. Some would argue it's a, it's a minor point. I would say it's not. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more in a second. But uh, the clarification is this. I had said that we're doing a study on the prayers of the Scriptures. And I spoke from Ephesians chapter 1 last week, and I said that uh, this was uh, a study on Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. And the person pointed out to me that Ephesians chapter 1 actually does not contain a prayer of Paul. It is a description. Paul's giving a description of how he prays for the, for the Ephesian church, but he's not actually praying in the text. He's just describing his prayer. So you could argue on the one hand that it is a study on the, the prayer of Paul for the Ephesian church once removed. Does that make sense? So he's praying this way, but he's just describing the prayer. Now some would say, eh, that's kind of semantics, isn't it? Yeah. Now when it comes to the scriptures, we need to be accurate with the scriptures. And so the person who talked to me, I appreciate he's right. It's a description of a prayer. It's not an actual prayer. It still is legitimate study of biblical prayers, though, because certainly uh, it is a description of Paul uh, describing his praying, and because he's describing the praying, his description of what he prays about is inspired. And therefore, what he is praying about is equally important and ought to be recognized. So I Although I appreciate, and I do appreciate, the clarification, we are certainly still studying the prayers of the Scripture, just in the case of the, the prayer of Ephesians, and in 1 Thessalonians today, as well as several others we'll look at, are a study of biblical prayers once removed from the prayer. It's kind of like, if I may say it this way, if I say, Charles, what are your prayers about? And he says to me, this is, how, this is what I pray about. I say, well, how do you pray about those things? And he tells me how he prays about those things. As much as he's presenting accurately what's actually happening in his prayers, it's a, it's a representation of his prayers, correct? And since we know that this is an inspired text, it's an accurate representation of his prayers. So we're still studying the prayer of Paul in Ephesians last week. It's just once removed from the actual individual words of the prayer if that makes sense. I just want to make that clarification because I, and as I said to this person, I said, yeah, it was kind of sloppy, me calling it a, a biblical prayer. It is a biblical, it's an accurate biblical study of an accurate explanation of a biblical prayer, which is obviously more accurate. But I just wanted to make that clarification. We're going to do the same thing in today's study in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It is a study of biblical prayer, but it is a study of a description of a biblical prayer. Before we get started in the text, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll look at the text though. Lord, help us this morning as we consider prayer. It is something that you talk about regularly in your scriptures. It's certainly a call on a Christian's life to be praying. It is clearly commanded in the scripture. It's clearly given examples in the scripture repeatedly. Uh, it is important to you and you have called us to that. And so Lord, I pray you'll help us to learn. Because in praying, there are many pitfalls we've seen over and over and over again. And Lord, we don't want to find those pitfalls anymore. We want to be focused on what, what is, is hot in your heart, not what's hot in ours. Because our hearts are sinful, yours is not. And so help us this morning as we consider 
this example of biblical praying, that it will be inculcated into our lives in our thoughts, not just in our activity of prayer, but in our hearts, so that it will flow out of our praying for your glory. Help us. In your name I pray. Amen. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian church, his description of his prayer. We're going to, for sake of conservation of language, we'll just call it Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian church. It's interesting, if you were to boil away Paul's prayer here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, what you'd come out of the text, when all is said and done, when all the boiling is done, the purified, specific product that could be summing, could sum up Paul's prayer, it is this. It's one word. Again, to say it a different way, Paul's prayer can be summed up with one word. And the word is thankfulness. This entire prayer drips with thankfulness. But before we get into the text, before we read the text, I need to ask a question, a very simple question, but a question nonetheless. When you pray, again, I'm assuming you pray, when you pray, are you thankful in your prayers? Now, and I'm asking the question not to guilt you into being more thankful. I want us to start out with a foundation, either a good one or a bad foundation with regard to ourselves as I study the text. <clears throat> but we're not done with the questions because the second question is going to follow up with this. Generally speaking, if you could broad brush your prayers, if you find yourself thankful at all in your prayers ever, ask yourself this question. <clears throat> if you could maybe have someone listen in and generally target this, what would you be thankful about? What would be the general themes about what you would find you're thankful about? Or the thankfulness that flows out of your prayers, what would it be focused on? That's the questions. These are the questions we have to ask ourselves. And the reason why I ask the question is because two things. Number one, I find most praying is not very thankful. Most of my praying if I'm being honest with you, which I hope I am, is oftentimes not as thankful as it ought to be. When I hear other people pray, <clears throat> i got to be honest with you, I don't hear a whole lot of thankfulness. Interestingly enough, thirdly, when I hear people being thankful in their prayers, when I listen to people's prayers, the thankfulness I hear falls into just a couple loose categories that all get folded into one big category. We're either thankful of our food, that's a big one, right? At least three times a day, unless you're on a cruise ship, then it's at least five times a day. <clears throat> We're thankful for our food, right? Beginning of, prayer, beginning of meals, we thank the Lord for the food, right? I mean, it's the thing you got to do. Outside of meals... We're usually thankful for good physical things that come into our lives, aren't we? I mean, isn't that generally speaking what thankfulness can be captured by? So you could argue that in all categories, gen I'm being general, if it doesn't apply to you, don't be offended. 
Okay? But if you choose to be, that's your call. But generally speaking, our thankfulness, that is Christian's thankfulness, tends to be about horizontal physical stuff. Good things that happen to us. Got a good report from the doctor. Arrived safely on a trip. Got a raise at work. Got a job. Got a better job. Got a new relationship. Got a healed relationship. Whatever the case may be. Got recognized at work. Have a new friend. Got a new car. Avoided an accident. These are the things we're typically thankful about. Am, am I wrong on that? Isn't that typical? I, I think that's pretty typical. I know I've only been around the block 60 years, but that's what I've found to be the case. Listen to the text. We're going to read all of chapter 1, and just by way of introduction of where we're headed, we're going to actually look at the text twice this morning. Because I think that there's two different ways, both parallel to one another, ways we can look at the text. Listen to the text with me. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks, there's the word, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, And with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in, in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Now let me just say this before we get into the text piece by piece. It is interesting. We see already that the the theme, I hope you picked it up already, that the theme of the text is being thankful, right? He's giving thanks. The entirety of this text is is couched in, he's describing in his prayers for them what he's thankful about. It is interesting, if you study Paul, and I would argue the rest of the Scriptures, it's pretty devoid of thankfulness for the things that we're thankful about. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find Paul thanking God for his chariot, if he had one, for his new chariot. I think you'd just be kind of hard-pressed finding that. I think you'd be hard-pressed, looking through the Scriptures, finding anybody thankful to the Lord for a really good health report from the doctor. 
Now, people say, well, there weren't no doctors back then, were there? Yeah, Luke. <laughs> Luke was a doctor. I think he'd be hard-pressed. I'm not saying that the scriptures are completely devoid of that, because I have not done an absolutely exhausting, exhaustive study of that. I'm seeing Charles up here already beginning to flip the, script, flip the pages around a little bit. I'm not saying that I've done an exhaustive study and it's, it's absolutely nowhere in the scriptures, but at minimum we can say that those kind of thankfulnesses are, at best, not common. Can we agree with that? So from the get-go, we could argue that the way we pray is the way we pray, I'm sorry, is not very common in the scriptures when it comes to thankfulness. Correct? It's not very common at all. Now you can shift over to the request side of it, you can equally say the same thing. At best, it's not real common. If I could just give you one example before we get into the text, this is on the request side. We request, for example, we request regularly, don't we? What's called travel mercies, don't we? Like safety? I mean, it's common, isn't it? It's a really common prayer request. Could you imagine if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego prayed that? Where they're getting ready to be thrown in the fiery furnace? God, keep us safe. It would be an easy prayer to pray, wouldn't it? It makes sense, doesn't it? Wouldn't it even make sense? Rescue us so we don't have to go in the fire? Wouldn't it make sense? And what does he pray? What do they pray instead? What do they say instead? Our God's going to take care of it. It's not a prayer, but their declaration is, 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 is in essence, a reflection of where their heart is, right? Which would be where their praying would be. Now, if God chooses, he can save us from it. If not, that's okay. Either way, what? Either way, he's God. We're not. He'll take care of us, right? Either way. We're not going to bow. What's that? And we're free from you. Either way. It's a stunning perspective, right? And by the way, their perspective is coming from a heart of worship, isn't it? Of God. Right? I think oftentimes our prayers are coming, our requests are coming from a heart of worship of ourselves. Now, we're not talking about requests. I'm just throwing that out there. I think our thankfulness is equally oftentimes informed by our self-worship. And we're just... Oftentimes, if you really listen to our prayers of thankfulness, what we're actually doing is we're saying, God, thank you for cooperating with what we worship ourselves. That's what we're, in effect, doing. So, with that in mind, that's just priming the pump for us to think a little bit. You'll notice in verse 2, starting in verse 2, in this description of Paul's prayer, he says, we give thanks to God always for you, all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So in this, in this opening uh, statement in verses 2 and 3, we have some statements that are very, very important as we try to drill into an understanding of Paul's, if I could put it this way, his heartbeat. Because remember what we said last week? Our praying reveals where our heart is. We said last week. And I would maintain that the scriptures everywhere argue that what we pray about reveals where our heart is. That doesn't mean we need to pray better. We don't study the, the, the passages of prayer so we know how to pray better, which is where most studies on prayer go. We need to pray better. 
which implies, by the way, something really gross. If I pray better, then I end up manipulating God to do what I want him to do. That's gross. That's shameful. Now, quite to the contrary, we look at studies in prayer because it exposes us to who we really are, where our heart is, what we worship. God gave us all these examples of prayer and descriptions of prayer to reveal our hearts. So we find out right away that when Paul talks about his prayer for the Thessalonian church, and don't think for a second the Thessalonian church is a great church. It's got a set of problems. But he says right away, in his thinking about, in his praying about the Thessalonian church, it is we give thanks to God. Why? Because what you're going to find out the rest of this chapter, because God is at work in them, and for Paul, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. That God's at work. God's transforming them. And that result of that is a prayer of thanksgiving that's being offered. And notice what he says about it. We thank God, what? Always. For all of you. And constantly is the next word, right? So always and constantly, you think Paul's trying to make a point here? What point is he trying to make in those two words? Yeah, it's not, it's not a once in a while thing, but quite to the contrary, what's in Paul's heart all the time? The Thessalonian people, the Thessalonian church, in his heart all the time, but most primarily, the God of the Thessalonian church is in his heart all the time. And because he sees the Thessalonians glorifying God, he sees God in the Thessalonian church, and therefore, the Thessalonian church is the focuser on his glorifying God and being thankful, because it's God who is at work in the Thessalonian church. Not that the Thessalonians are doing so everything so great. It's the God that's at work in them. But his prayer is constant, focused on thankfulness on what's taking place in the Thessalonian church, the people of the Thessalonian church, that is the faithful ones. So he's remembering them continually before God, that is he's bringing the Thessalonian church continually before God in thankfulness he says, remembering before God, verse 3, before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pretty potent description, isn't it? It's a general description, but it's a really potent description. Let me read it again. Remembering before our God and Father, your number one work of faith, Number two, labor of love. Number three, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. My goodness, now there's a cause for, for thankfulness, isn't it? If we're caught up with Jesus. My goodness, did you hear it? Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. So they're caught up with Jesus. They're caught up with, with the God who has saved them. The result of that is that they're working 
by faith, that is, as Philippians says, what we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is He who is at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. They are working, doing works of faith, responding to the One who loves them, who first loved them and still is the first lover of their souls. They're responding in faith to that love the work of faith, labor of love, this is not a duty to them, this is a labor of love. And there is a steadfastness in the Thessalonian church, a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we could spend all sorts of time unpacking those three things we are not going to. Paul's going to unpack them. I'd encourage you to. We're going to unpack them as he does here, but those three statements are potent by themselves. He goes on in verse 4 and explains the specifics of what he's referencing with regard to his thankfulness. Verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Let's just stop on verse 4 for a second. No, 4 and 5. He says in verse 4 that he has absolute confidence. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. You're a believer. We know it. How, does it. how do they know? How does Paul know? Yeah, notice what it says in verse Five, because our gospel came to you not only in word, it wasn't just words. You didn't just say, yeah, I consent to those words. But what happened? But also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We know you're saved. Why? Sum it up. What do you think that, that, that statement in verse 5 means? Because you see the fruit. Because the evidence is what? Clear. The, it was not merely words. Now, this is a radical statement, by the way. Kind of an aside from our discussion on what you know this biblical study of prayer. But it is interesting that Paul says very clearly, I'm not being thankful because you, you, you assented to the words that I gave you. Which, if I may submit, is what a lot of people who claim to be Christians have done. They assented to the facts. Now, I would argue Paul would find that absolutely disgusting. He's thankful because what? They didn't merely assent to the words. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't um, um, as it says in verse 5, because our gospel came not, or to you not only in word, but... Also, there was something that accompanied those words. Is that what it says? Yes. What accompanied? Power in the Holy Spirit and full conviction. Now, again, we need to pause on that. He is thankful for what in the, in the Thessalonian church? When he looks at the Thessalonian church, when he hears with regard to the Thessalonian church, what's he hearing? Yes! They are lights in the midst of darkness. He's being thankful continually. Why? Because what he's hearing 
is that they are transformed and transforming people. He's rejoicing. He's being thankful because, because they are walking a life of faith. But ultimately, he's being thankful for the Thessalonian church. Why? Because the Spirit came with conviction and power. Full power. Because the Spirit, he's thanking the Lord because the Lord did this. Right? The Lord is doing this. The Lord will continue to do this. Are they transformed? Yes. Are they being transformed currently when he wrote this? Yes. If the Spirit is truly at work, will they continue to be transformed? Yes. And that's what he's being thankful about. And then he continues in verse 5, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. What's he talking about? He's not bragging on himself. That doesn't fit the context at all. You know what he's saying? When he says in verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, what he's referencing is this. He's saying, you know that the Spirit is at work in us. He's talking about the, the Holy Spirit there. The Holy Spirit has also come to us, not in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He's saying, you know us. We're there. We preach the gospel. We preach this gospel that, that you heard and received by the power of the Holy Spirit and were and are continuing to be transformed. You know us, the bearers of that message, and you know that that is true of us as well. You observed it. You saw it. It resonated out from us. It was clear. The, if I may just say this, in Paul's thankful prayer here, he's saying, in effect, that this was obvious. You kind of get that, don't you? It was obvious. It was obvious in us when we were with you. It's now obvious with you. And he's going to clarify that even more in just a few minutes. He goes on in verse 6. And you became imitators of us. What does that mean? Well, they were doing what? As being recipients of the gospel themselves, the Spirit bringing full power, full conviction. You looked at us and you, because you desired to glorify Christ, because you had the same Spirit, you looked at us to see what it looked like. And you imitated it. Of course, it goes on in verse 6, that you became imitators of us and of the Lord because you have the written word that tells us about how the Lord was. And so you imitated him as well. For you received the word in much affliction. And this is really interesting. He gives, a, again, a clarification of what he is being thankful of, isn't he? You received the word of the Lord in what? Much affliction. You know what that means? You know what he's talking about there? There was a lot of resistance. In the community of Thessalonica, there was a lot of resistance. There was a lot of people chafing. There was a lot of people fighting against the Gospel. You can read about it in the book of Acts. There was a war going on against Paul. 
And yet there were some, in the midst of all that affliction, and the war, if it's on Paul, if you think about it, if it's on Paul, and people begin to respond to the message that Paul is presenting, what's going to happen to those people who are responding to the message Paul is preaching? Affliction there too. That's exactly what he's talking about. In the midst of tough, hard affliction, much affliction, you receive the word. And notice how it's described. You receive the word how? What does it say? Not on my forehead, it's on the scripture page. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. So it, they received the word of the gospel with the full power of the Holy Spirit and conviction, and added to that is what? Joy. Joy. In the midst of the affliction, joy. And the implication of that is not just it's stated in the past tense, but because of the big picture here of the context, that joy is continuing. That's really clear in the context of chapter 1. The joy is still continuing. You received the beginning point. He's looking at the beginning point of their salvation. When he was there, he preached it. Some received it in the midst of much affliction, and they received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And the implication, again, in chapter 1, is that that joy remains. Because he's still giving that kind of thankfulness for them. So that, verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Chaos. Does it sound to you, can I just ask a quick question? Does it sound to you that the Spirit coming in full power and conviction, does it sound to you that, that the result of that kind of reverberates a little bit? Is that what it sounds like? Like I got one, of course. Does it sound like it reverberates a little bit? You sound like it evidences itself. Does it sound like that here? Well, yes. Paul is rejoicing dramatically over that reality. He is enthralled with this. He's excited about it. He's moved. He's captivated. Absolutely captivated that the Holy Spirit is doing this amazing work in the Thessalonian church. It's resonating in the midst of affliction. It's resonated and continues to resonate outwards all the way to Macedonia and Achaia. Verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, so what do we just, what do we just learn? By the way, what do we just learn in verse 8? So he just added a subtle addition to the description of what he's rejoicing over. They're proclaiming. Do you pick that up? Yes, they're traveling with it. They're proclaiming. It's not just spreading because people have come to 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 Thessalonica and picked up on it. That's happened. That's what verse 7 is talking about. But in verse 8, he expands it and says they're actually, when the, when the Thessalonica Christians go to Macedonia, go to Achaia, what happens? They preached the gospel with Holy Spirit power and full conviction. Yes, absolutely. You're right, Charles. Part of imitating Paul and Christ, the Lord. Continues in verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth where? Everywhere. 
so that we need not say anything. Wow, is that encouraging to Paul, huh? He is, he's expressing in his prayers continually, or constantly, in, in, always, in his prayers, with regard to the Thessalonian people, the Thessalonian Christians, because the Spirit has come, and this is the evidence that the Spirit has come upon them. With full power and conviction, and this is what's happened. It's stunning, isn't it? So much so, that it's gone forth everywhere. It's gone forth before them. It went forth when they went, by the preaching of the gospel they were doing, and it's gone even beyond that, everywhere. Everybody knows about this Macedonian and Achaean church. I'm sorry, this, this Thessalonican church. Everyone knows. They've heard. Something's going on there. Those people are caught up in something. Somebody by the name of Jesus. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, that is, we hear from other people who have run into you guys all over the place, as well as those who haven't but just have heard about it, that, that our preaching to you has an effect. Remember, Paul's in prison. had an effect, dramatic effect. And how dramatic of an effect is it? Again, verse 9, and how you turned, and notice the description of repentance here, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God, or serve the true, living and true God. You turned to God from idols, rejecting idolatry in all its forms, to serve the living and true God. Clear picture of repentance. <clears throat> Verse 10, And to wait for His Son from heaven. And that wait does not mean sit back and relax. Which is, by the way, one of the problems the Thessalonian church has. To sit back and relax. It's interesting. That's for discussion for another time. <clears throat> and to wait for His Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Clearly, in 1 Thessalonians 1, it more shows up in, in 2 Thessalonians, the problem of the church. But in 1 Thessalonians 1, they're not just sitting back yet, are they? Not here, they're not. Not here, clearly. When it says, and to wait, in verse 10, for his son from heaven, this is a, in, in chapter 1, this is a very active waiting, isn't it? In the church, it's very active. As they travel from the church, it's equally active. It's so active that it's what? Spreading everywhere. That's their waiting. Their waiting is a very active, ministry-oriented, proclamation-oriented, gospel-oriented waiting. Waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath of God. That's the text. I said we're going to look at it two different ways. We're going to. Interesting study as we've worked our way through the text because right at the beginning we asked, are you thankful? And I would argue most Christians aren't except for perfunctively thankful. Or if just if they are thankful, it's horizontal things. 
What's really interesting is we find Paul, if I may do a complete contrast between our typical praying and Paul's praying, what do you have? In our typical praying, if we're thankful over things other than food, laying food aside for a second, we're praying. I'm just going to give an example. I'm praying to God, oh my goodness, so-and-so has cancer. God, please heal them, 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 please heal them. And then they're healed, if they are. Let's say they are. They're healed. Get a clear report back. And we do what? We thank him, right? And how long does that thankfulness last? Yeah, usually like one or two sentences, and then we're off of that. We forget it. We move on to the next thing, the next request, right? Request, 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 request. And then we're thankful when suddenly a prayer is answered again. And then we're off it real quick, so we're rushing off to, how does Paul pray for the, for the Thessalonians again? What's the word? Thankfully, right? And he does it how? Constantly, all the time. But what's he being thankful about? Not healing from cancer. That's not in there, is it? Yes. He's, he's caught up in this thankfulness that they, by the Spirit, in full conviction, are being called into a supernatural unity with Christ. And so the result of being supernaturally unified with Christ is that they are supernaturally unified with one another in the church. Right? That's what he's talking about here. So the first thing I, I, I want to wrestle with, with us as we talk about this text, as we think about it in light of our praying, is this. Where do we start out? What are we thankful about? Remember what we said? What we pray about reveals a lot about us. Theologically, in reality. For Paul, we have the scenario where all he seems to care about is what? No, for Paul, what does he care about? He cares about God being glorified. Right? Isn't that his heartbeat? Now we know that's the case elsewhere, don't we? Don't we find out all the time? He's willing to, he's willing to be shipwrecked. He's willing to be imprisoned. He's willing to be beaten with rods. He's willing to be stoned. He's willing to be thrown out of cities. He's willing to be mocked. He's willing to be ridiculed. He's willing to be imprisoned. He's willing to be hauled off to Rome. He's willing to die. Right? Am I missing anything? That's a general summation. For what purpose? Because he sees Christ as more valuable than his life. Isn't that right? He sees Christ more valuable than anything he knows. Sounds like Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, doesn't it? He rejected all the riches of Egypt because he, he found the riches of Christ more valuable. Does that make sense? It's a radical difference. He gave up it all because he considered the riches of Christ more valuable. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. And we find that here for Paul... He's caught up in that. Which, when we're studying prayer, should cause us again to start to reflect and ask ourselves, what's important to me? 
What's valuable? Or to put it a different way, why? Here's a really painful question to ask. Why isn't Christ that valuable to me? Why isn't he valuable at all? Now that's a really painful question to ask, so most of us don't want to ask. Because we would say right away, get our hackles up right away, right? And say, no, 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 Christ, well you say, why isn't Christ valuable at all? Christ is valuable to me. I receive him as my savior. I'm here at church. I'm receiving the word. I read the Bible once in a while. I pray once in a while. Yes! But. Right? We've got to throw the butt in there, don't we? Because if, if he's only that valuable to us, what does it say? What I just described. If that's as valuable as he is, what is that? It's not valuable at all. If I can be blunt, the idea of Christ being valuable to, enough to come to church on Sunday, to read the Bible occasionally, to pray occasionally, I find my mom's diaper genie more valuable than that. I love my mom's diaper genie. I don't use it for diapers. I do sometimes, but usually I use it for her commode liner. Two or three times every day, I go into my mom's bedroom and I take the commode liner that's full of urine and poop and I tie it up and I carry that thing out several times a day. I put my foot on the, on the little step thing in the bottom to open it up put it in there, and it goes away. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Completely contained, completely sealed, no more urine anywhere, no poop anywhere, no smell. No, It's wonderful. I use it three, three, four times a day sometimes, and every time I use it, I rejoice. I am so thankful for whoever created the diaper genie. I love the thing. I absolutely love it. In fact, I just talked to my wife about it yesterday. Maybe we got to get another one for the kitty litter. The things are amazing. Do you realize I'm more enthralled with the diaper genie than most Christians are of Jesus? I think about the diaper genie repeatedly throughout my day. I'm happy about it. I rejoice over it. I think it's the coolest thing in the world. Like, wow, this is so cool. Go on. I tell others about it. I'm in throw. It's the gospel of diaper genies. I'm in Walmart last night buying new new sleeves for the thing, and a lady walks up to me and starts talking to me about how wonderful they are. She uses one for her dog. She goes, Oh, you're getting them too. Aren't they great? They're the best thing in the world. We had a 10-minute conversation about diaper genies and poop and pee. That's more gospel presentation than most people ever do with the gospel in a year. They claim to be believers. You realize that? If I'm more enthralled over a diaper genie than I am over Jesus, what's, am I really worshiping Jesus? Do I really think much of him? 
I mean, how much more is Jesus involved in life than a diaper genie? I don't know if you guys have one. You guys probably used it more than I did, more than I do. But you get my point, don't you? Does that make sense? See, we deceive ourselves and think, I go to church, I read my Bible occasionally, I pray occasionally, I love Jesus. Are you kidding? I don't think that's what he's called us to, has he? And I don't think that's what the Spirit does, does he? I don't think so. That's not what I see in the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, Jesus sounds to me like a little bit better than a diaper genie. Hey, it sounds a lot more different than a diaper genie. Paul is constantly thanking the Lord. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has come to him in full power and conviction. That's why. That's why. So I guess the first way we can look at this text is by challenging ourselves and asking ourselves, what am I thankful about? I know some, this message may be offending people, and I'm cool with that. I'm fine with that. It should be. The gospel is an offense. But he is thankful constantly, all the time, because he's absolutely enthralled with the reality of the Spirit at work in people's lives, transforming them. Can I ask you a quick question? Coming off the intro, how often do you pray for the people of our church? How often do you pray for one another? Because really, part one and part two of this message intertwine dramatically. It's hard. I'm trying to separate the two parts, but it's hard to. For Paul, the thing that matters to him is what? Only one thing. We find out he's a tent maker, don't we? Yeah, we find out he's a tent maker. But isn't that just kind of a blip on the screen? Right? And it's mentioned like once or twice. And his purpose is not because he's like, yeah, I'm a tent maker. I'm pretty good, too. I can make the best tents in the world. I can beat the competition and better prices, too. No, he just throws it out there. He's a tent maker. But what, if you squeeze Paul, what does he drip? Tents? Does he drip his business? When you squeeze Paul, what comes out? Christ. Christ and him crucified. And if that's true, then what is going to be evidence in his prayers? Christ and him crucified. So, again, as I said before, the challenge of the text is not we need to pray better, we need to pray for one another better, we need to pray that, and be thankful that God is at work and so and so. That'll come when I'm where? When I have the Spirit in full power and conviction, right? That's, am, I, am I missing something? I don't think so. This, this is not a guys, guys, ladies, we've got to do better here at, at, at Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. That's not what this text is about. This text challenges me. Who am I in relation 
to Christ. And who is Christ in relation to me? What's going on there, Steve? That's what the text challenges me with. It should challenge us with as well, each one of us. Am I finding myself thankfully praying for the people of the church? Are you finding yourselves thankfully praying for the people of the church? Ah, well, that begs another question. Uh, and this gets really painful now. What does everybody be thankful about with regard to our church and the people of our church? This is where it gets really painful. I wrestled with this going to this text because of this. Because it gets really painful. I don't think the point of the text is, listen, guys, ladies, we need to pray thankfully for one another. No, that's not the point of the text. And here's the reason why. I'll give you really clear evidence of why that is. When you get a chance, look at, for example, the book of Galatians. I'm just throwing that as an example. And you know what's stunningly missing in the beginning of the book of Galatians? Thankfulness. It is the loudest silence you will ever hear. He introduces himself as the writer, and right after he says that, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? There's no thankfulness there. It's painful. We don't conjure up thankfulness. We don't say, well, you know, God says we need to be thankful for the church and for one another, so let's be thankful. No. He tells us in this text what is to be thankful for. If there is not reason to be thankful, you know what the response should be? What do you think? Help me out. Somebody. Repentance, perhaps? What else? If necessary, absolutely. Grieving. Right? Grieving prayer. Shouldn't it? It's troubling if there's no grieving prayer, isn't there? Brokenness, grieving, it's concerning. The prayer ought to be grieving if what Paul talks about here isn't there. We could also add on, after mentioning Galatians, if the things he describes here that are worthy of thankfulness are not in existence, and I'm not saying, I'm, I'm challenged just to think. I'm not, I'm not making a declaration that's non-existent. I'm saying we need to evaluate and think, right? What does Paul do when there's nothing to be thankful for? What does he do? He, you hinted at it. Over here, somebody, one of you three girls hinted at it. What should happen is a call to repentance. Not just by the pastor, but by who? The people at church to one another, if the Spirit's fully at work, right? If the Spirit's at work in power and conviction, because if I'm convicted and convinced, and that's the idea of convicted, I'm convinced that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer, if I'm convinced of that because the Spirit's at work in me, and I look at Ken, I'm just using you as an example, Ken, and I look at Ken and I don't see him. Chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, would it not be most appropriate for me, first of all, to be grieving over him? Should it? 
And then in grieving, should I not then be speaking the gospel into his life? Shouldn't I? The worst of the scenario is when I look at 10, and if I don't see the gospel at work in 10, and I don't grieve, and I don't call to repentance and minister to him, Christ, and him crucified, you know what that says about me? Yeah, we're the same. The Spirit's not at work in me. I'm not in conviction. That's what it means. See, that, that brings me to a second point. You know, we're talking about praying and thanksgiving. Am I praying with thanksgiving? Is there anything to be thankful about? If we go back to the text again, we need to ask ourselves some really poignant questions. Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Is, are those three in evidence by the Spirit in our lives? For example, he goes on in verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our Gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Is that evidence in our lives. That description of the Holy Spirit is that evidence in our lives, that the Spirit is at work in that way. He goes on, um, verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. Stop there, verse 6. I'm just asking questions. I'm not making declarations. I'm just asking questions according to the text in this study on prayer. Are we people who are striving because of Him who is striving in us, the Spirit, we work because He works, are we looking around for godly examples, imitating godliness of others and the Lord? That's what he's talking about, right? Is that percolating in our lives? Is that our thinking? I'm not talking about I'm not talking about stupid things. I'm, talk, I'm not talking about horizontal things like Steve runs, I better run. That's stupid. Or Steve shaves his head, I better shave my head. That's just stupid. I hear a lot of talk of discipleship in those realms, which is really troubling. I'm talking about what does it look like to be godly? What does it look like to love Jesus? What does it look like to proclaim Christ? What does it look like to reflect his love? And look around for godly people that evidence it and compare it and contrast it with the perfect example, right? Jesus Christ. And then, verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Can I just ask you real quick? Even though it's in the past tense, the evidence of the text in all of chapter 1 makes it very clear it's current in the present as well. Do our lives, if our lives are summed up, do our lives demonstrate the joy of the Holy Spirit? Do they evidence the Holy Spirit joy? I'm just curious. I challenge myself with this. What are my joys? Are they Christ-centered? Are they Christ-consumed? Are they informed by the truth? 
or my joys elsewhere. Whatever that may be. Are my joys Christ-focused, which is the joy of the Holy Spirit, because his focus is on the Holy Spirit's focus is on the glorification of Christ. Will my joy Christ-centered, Christ-focused, Christ-consumed? There's other things. In the midst of affliction, in the midst of difficulty, where the rubber meets the road, when life is tough, when I'm sick, when I have cancer, when I don't get the promotion, when I am mistreated, misjudged, lied about, whatever the case may be. Joy? That's what Paul's talking about. Joy? That's what James talks about too, doesn't he? When he says, count it all joy, my brother, when you when life goes well. Is that what it says? No, James says, count it all joy when you experience various trials of many different kinds. Knowing this, there's theology. Knowing the truth, what? What does it say? Knowing this, what? Anybody? James 1. What? No? It says, consider it all joy. I'm just testing you now. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you experience various trials of many kinds. Knowing this, that the trying or working of your face does what? Produces perseverance or faithfulness. That's the truth. That's Christ-centered. That God is at work here. It starts with God. It remains with God. God's doing something here. Woo! Joy. That's what we find here. In the midst of much affliction, which brings us to verse 7. I mean, this is a great passage to challenge us. Ready? You have the Holy Spirit in full power and conviction. Are you worthy of being rejoiced over? Because Not because of you, you're never worthy, but because the Spirit's at work. Well, what does it say? Verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. What does it mean? It doesn't mean that you need to be known in Macedonia and Achaia. Can I just say this? I find it over and over and over and over again when I talk to unsaved people who know Christians from this church as well as other churches and they don't know they're even Christians. What does that mean? How is it possible if I'm enthralled with Jesus that my next door neighbor doesn't know it? How is that possible that I could be enthralled with Jesus and my co-worker doesn't know it? I'm just trying to process that. How is it possible? How is it possible if I'm caught up with, enthralled with the love of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit? I don't even know if my, my relatives are saved. How is it possible? It doesn't make a lick of sense unless, unless it's all a lie. And the Holy Spirit, if he exists at all, is really impotent. I don't buy that for a second. I don't buy it for a second. 
But in verse 7, he says, here's the deal. This is the evidence that these things are happening. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Can I ask you a quick question? Are you an example to any believer? That's not an accusing question. It's just asking a question. Is your life an example? Are you an example? Does, is there anybody that looks to you? The same person looks to you and says, help me. Help me know Jesus. Help me know Jesus better. Anybody? Verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, are we telling anybody about Jesus? Are we? Are we telling anybody about Jesus? For these people, it's in other cities they're talking about because they heard it from them. This is kind of like a Matthew 28 thing. As you're going, make disciples. As they were going, they were what? Make disciples. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So it's gone beyond even where they've gone. Our faith isn't even going to the next door too often, is it? Our faith, our faith too often can't even send an email, can't even type on a keyboard. Our faith too often can't even pick up a phone. We'll call people or send text messages about everything, won't we? I mean, we know that's true. We send Facebook messages or text messages or emails about everything. Most things really inane. But about Christ? Hmm. I find it enthralling in a bad way, not in a good way. I post things, I post two different types of things on Facebook regularly. It's either really important theological perspectives or really funny things. At least things I think are funny. My wife doesn't think they're too funny, but I think they're funny. Um, on the funny things I post, and I always look to see who's liking them, not for my own stroking at all, but just because I'm, just, I'm intrigued. I'll get like 40, 50, 60, 70 likes and thumbs up and happy smiley faces or laughing faces on my funny posts. And when I post a theological truth, or something about Jesus, I'll get three or four. Five. I'll look over at my funny posts, and I admit, I steal most of them. I'm a thief. And it's a lot of Christians, not always, a lot of unsaved people too, but a lot of Christians are liking it, happy face, smiley face, funny face. Laughing face. But on the Christian posts, I get just very few. And interestingly enough, sometimes on my serious posts, I get more unsaved people give me responses than saved people. Like, what is going on? What is wrong with this picture? And I'm just using Facebook as an example. Verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. So it's to God from idols. We already looked at this. To what? What's the next word? 
from idols, or to God, from idols, to, what's the next word? Serve the living God. And when he says to serve the living God, that, that term serve really is a term connected to bond servants. There's a loyalty there. A bond servant. A loyalty to the one who has first loved us. To serve the living and true God, we recognize who the living and true God is in contrast to the dead gods that I served before. The dead gods that my heart is continually creating for me to worship. I'm recognizing the contrast. I'm serving who? I'm fighting against the ones that continually pop up in my heart all the time. I'm serving. I'm hot after serving the living and true God. And I'm longingly, actively waiting. Again, this text is not a call. There's no command here. This text is not a call to be thankful. This text is not a call to do better. At all. This this text is given as an example of what it looks like to be enthralled with Jesus. Because when we're enthralled with Jesus, you know what begins to happen? We become really thankful. We become caught up in thankfulness to a God that is so merciful and so gracious because we see that all things are from Him, through Him, to Him, to Him be glory forever. Amen. And we become enthralled by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And in being enthralled and thankful, we grieve when we see people not tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, that claim to be believers. And we minister to them because we can't help it. We want them to know Jesus. And as a good soldier, we don't get distracted by the things that are not about soldiering for our general. We see things as from him, through him, to him. So if this blank thing is not from him, through him, to him, I don't care. If it's not for his glory, then it's for my detriment. It's an ensnarement. It's a trap. That's the way things start to change by the Spirit. If we don't see ourselves in this text to play the game here, if we may, and it's a serious game, placing ourselves in the Thessalonian church, would this be a letter to me? Would chapter 1 be a letter to me? Or better put, would chapter 1 be a description of the Spirit at work in my life? Evidently, as my life is looked at, would it be? Or would that not be me? You see, the alternative, if this isn't me, if this isn't you that Paul's praying about, if, if, if the people he's praying about is not what we are by the Spirit, you know who we are? I hate to be blunt, but we're Jude kind of people. That's the scriptures. I mean, we're one or the other. We may dress up real nicely, but if we're not this, we're Jude kind of people. And unless you miss the point, 
in Jude, if you think, well, wouldn't that be obvious? Mm. No, Jude calls them hidden reefs, which means what? You don't see them. But they're there, and, and people are being shipwrecked on, shipwrecked on them all the time. That's the contrast. Or to do it a different way, we're either Galatian kind of people or this kind of people. That's all by the Spirit. Again, please don't miss it. I'm not saying, guys, do better or try harder. When the Spirit's with us in full conviction, you know that's what happens. God's call for justification is the same as it is for our sanctification as well. Repent and believe. Repent and trust. Look to Jesus. Drink deeply at the well, at a fountain of living waters. Eat continually of the bread of life. And the Spirit will change us. I'm convinced. I'm absolutely convinced. And we will find ourselves being thankful and grieving and ministering and proclaiming because the love of Christ will control us. Not the stupid pastor saying, dude, you need to do it. The love of Christ will control us. As we talked about last week or the week before, the fear of God. Because we know the fear of God, we will persuade men. The call of the scriptures, the call of this text, is merely to repent and believe if that's not us. If it is us, the call is to rejoice. Be thankful that the Spirit has done, is doing, and will do, and to then minister to others because you've been ministered to. Being imitators. Be lights in the midst of darkness. Rejoicing in difficulty. Being fully convinced of what God has done and is doing and will do. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. I ask every week for you to help us because what we just saw in your text is overwhelming. We get caught up, as we were talking about prayer, we get caught up in all the wrong things. We, we rejoice in the wrong things. We thank you for the wrong things. We, we look for the wrong things. We long for the wrong things. We hope for the wrong things. We get aggravated over the wrong things. We get irritated over the wrong things. We get offended by the wrong things. And so, Lord, we ask you to change our hearts so that we will we will love what you love and hate what you hate. I pray, Lord, that what will be real in our lives is that the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Protect us from falling into the such easy and yet evil trap of thinking we just got to try harder. We just got to do more. Or in this case, we just better pray more thankfully and tell people about Jesus. That's so wrong-headed. We ask that your spirit moves mightily in us, captivate us with you. So that we, as a result, may join with Paul in rejoicing.
being thankful about you and what you've done, what you are doing, what you've promised to do. To you be glory forever and ever. Amen.